Matthew 21. My perspective on um, teaching has kind of changed over this last year. Uh, I don't want to say it was performance-based, but it was kind of like you were studying to like give a show. It sounds so shallow, but that was kind of it. You were like ready to deliver this message and I wanted it to be good and, and all these things. And then we shut down for COVID and it became really kind of felt like a performance because I was recording all of these things, right? So if I messed up, I'd be like, oh, I'd edit that out. And you, it just felt like it became so much of a, a production while we were doing online only. And then we got to meet back in the park and there were so little expectations in the park, right? People hadn't had real church in a long time and we were outside and there was like people with chainsaws trying to interrupt us and stuff. And it was just like, It was like, all right, we're going to hang out and talk about the Bible. And it felt like during that time, it just became like, okay, I studied this week, and now I'm just going to go hang out with my friends and share what the Lord showed me. And it was more like a time just to hang out and be like, hey, guys, look what I learned, than it was like a production or a show. And that has continued, at least in my preparation, in my heart, in the way I view Sundays. And I'm kind of really excited about this morning because this particular topic that we're going to talk about is the one that I hold in the highest regard out of all the character qualities uh, that we talk about in the lives of people. Like when when I'm trying to decide, and it doesn't happen a ton, like, but if I'm trying to decide like who's going to be in a spot and, and if I trust them or, 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 you know, if I'm ever in a scenario where I have to make a judgment about somebody and where they're out in their character, this is the character quality look, I look at above and beyond any other character quality. And this is probably one of the rarest character qualities that you will find in society. This just doesn't happen very often. It, it's just rare. You don't see it. It doesn't exist in a lot of people. So not only do I hold it in high regard, but I don't see it very often. So I know you all are dying. What is he talking about? So let's jump in and find out what we are talking about. Jesus here is talking about a, he's going to tell a couple parables. Uh, We've been working through parables that Jesus is teaching. So this one starts in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 21. And this is what Jesus says. He says, what do you think? So there's a crowd around him. He's talking to the crowd. What do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son. And he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. So Jesus starts this parable with a question to the crowd, which I love. And it's simple. And it's not like super in-depth or complicated. But just the idea that Jesus assumes that the crowd can figure this out. Do you know how profound that is? Right? So many people think that like a relationship with God or like an understanding of how to relate to God or, or an understanding of the Bible or biblical truth is very complicated, very, very hard to understand, hard to grasp. And Jesus is on the complete other end of that spectrum. He's like, hey, what do you guys think to a crowd of people? Like he assumes that what he is about to say is not only understandable, but comprehensible by the people and that they will make a good judgment regarding what he is about to teach about a relationship with God. That's pretty profound that he thinks that you can understand him, that God thinks that when he speaks, you can hear it and understand it. Because lots of times I hear people say stuff like, I tried to read the Bible. I just didn't get it. Well, slow down a little bit because Jesus thinks that you can get it. 
So why would I say, oh, yeah, you need me. I went to two and a half years of an unaccredited Bible college to figure this stuff out. No, man, like I actually went to longer school than that. But like that's what like we, we get this idea that you need like some sort of degree or something to figure out God. No, no, he made you. He knows how to talk to you if he wants to. So we have two sons here. The first son is annoying. Uh, the second son would probably be infuriating. And I would actually argue that the second son was much more harmful and destructive in what he did than the first son. Because think about the story here. There is work that needs to be done in the father's vineyard. The father is like, oh man, got to get this work done. He goes to the first son and he says, hey man, can you go work in the vineyard today? The first son says, no. And we're not told why. Maybe it was a really good reason. Maybe he was like taking care of his family, right? These aren't sons like probably 12 years old. These are probably grown sons that could do the work, right? Maybe the guy was taking care of his family. Maybe he was doing other work. Maybe he was on a trip. We don't know. Maybe it was a great reason. Maybe it was a terrible reason. Maybe he's like, ah, New Year's Day, bowl games are on, sorry. You know, or he's like, video game, you know, got to check Facebook. I don't know. Maybe it was a terrible reason. We're not told. He just said, no, not, not going to do it. And so what would happen then as the father is thinking in his mind, how do I get this work done in the vineyard, is he would go to somebody else to ask them to get the work done, right? He'd go to his first son and be like, hey, can you get the work done? No. He'd be like, man, that's annoying. But in the, in the father's mind, at least, he would know that the work is not going to get done unless he finds somebody to go do the work. So the father knows that that still needs to be accomplished. I still need to go find someone to do the work. So he would go to somebody else. Hey, I asked him. He said, no, will you go do the work? Yeah, okay, thanks. Go do the work. The second son the conversation would go about the same, right? Hey, this work needs to get done in the vineyard. The, the guy says, yeah, I'll go do it. And so the father is now thinking the work is getting done, right? If you're, he's like, I got to find someone to get the work done. Oh, he said, yes, perfect. Box checked, right? Accomplished, mission accomplished. I got done what I needed. It's going to get accomplished. Now, we don't know when, but a couple hours later, father somehow finds out, wait, the work in the vineyard's not done? Where's my son? Well, he said he was going to go do it. Well, he never showed up. What do you mean he never? Well, what happened? Is he okay? Yeah, he's okay. He's just sitting in his tent. Why is he in his tent? Right? Now there's problems upon problems. Not only did the father not know the work was not getting done when he assumed it was getting done because the son told him, but now there's like some trust issues going on. He's like, wait, why did you tell me you would if you weren't going to? Like, why do you lie to me? Why did you feel the need to lie to me? Why didn't you just do what you said? You're like, there's all these layers of difficulty. And on top of all of that, the work didn't get done. So now he's still got to go back and find somebody else to do what needed to be done. And so the second son did so much more harm to the father. First son, probably annoying, right? That he said no. But the second son, there is literally problems upon problems. So essentially, there's two issues going on here. There is the idea that you know the right thing to do. And then there's the idea that you actually do the right thing. Okay, those are two different issues. Knowing the right thing and doing the right thing. Here's a question. Which one of the two sons knew what the right thing to do was? Both of them. They both knew what the right thing to do was, right? The first son knew because after he said no, he thought about it. And he's like, you know what? I should be out there working. 
I should have done what dad asked. And so he goes and does it. So he proves that he knew the right thing to do was to go do the work because he changed his mind and goes and does it. The second son also knew that the right thing to do was to go do the work. Why? Because he said yes. When dad asked him, he said, yeah, I'm going to do that. Why did he say yes? Because he knew he should. But that's not the question Jesus asks. And I think that's interesting that it's not the question Jesus asks, because many times we base our Christianity or many times religious people base their relationship with God on knowing the right thing to do. But knowing the right thing to do is of zero value if you don't actually intend to do it. Let me say that again. Knowing the right thing to do does not help anybody, including you, if you don't go out and do it. And lots of times this happens in church, right? You come, you hear a message, you're like, I know what I got to do. That will not help you unless you go do it. People go, oh yeah, that was great, pastor. Yeah, if you go do it. If not, it was a complete waste of your time. Knowing the right thing to do doesn't help anybody if it doesn't lead to action. The issue is not which one knew the right thing to do. And we understand this in every area of life. Why are we all not in as good of shape as we want to be? Is it because we don't know the right thing to do? No, it's because we don't do it, right? Because it was Christmas and we wanted a cookie and a caramel and a Tim Tam Slam. If you don't know what that is, Google it. It's from Australia. They're incredible, right? The reason that we aren't in good shape is because we don't do the things we know to do. We, we eat more than we should, and when we should be out doing something active or exercising or something like that, we're sitting on the couch, like, eating more, right? That's why we're not all in as good a shape as we wish we were. It's not because we don't know enough. It's just because we don't do enough. And that works not only in that physical aspect of our life, but in our spiritual life as well. The problem is not that we don't know enough. In fact, the problem in your life very rarely, like 99 times out of 100, is not that you don't know what you should do. The problem is actually doing what you know. And so the question that Jesus asked is not which one knew the right thing to do. Look at what the question is. Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? And the crowd answered, remember, Jesus thinks the crowd can grasp this, which they do. They said, the first. The first one, obviously, because the first one actually got work done in the vineyard. So both of the sons knew what to do. Only one son actually did the will of the father. Only one son is actually doing what he knows he should be doing. And as a Bible believer and a Jesus follower, doing the will of the father should be a priority in our lives. And yet, surprisingly, even within the church, which is why Jesus is teaching this message to this particular group of people, which we'll talk about in a second, even within the church, doing the will of the Father is surprisingly unimportant. There, it is very rare to find somebody on planet Earth whose greatest priority is to do the will of the Father. Just think about it in your own minds. Think about the people you know. Think about your own family, right? Could you say that 
you or your family or the people you know, like how many of them, you're like the most important thing to that family, that person, that couple is doing what God wants them to do. Like if God wanted them to sell everything and be in Africa in two weeks from now as missionaries, I could totally see them doing it. That list is pretty short, right? That list is pretty short. Now, I'm not here just to make you all feel terrible, but I am here to teach what Jesus taught and say that doing the will of the Father is surprisingly unimportant to people who claim to follow God. But making you all do more or feel like you should be doing more for God is not the point of Jesus' message. Look at the application that Jesus points out, okay? And the conclusion he draws. Jesus said to them, Truly, end of verse 31. Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you do not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Okay, so we need to remind ourselves of the context of the story a little bit. Jesus is in the last week of his life right here. Okay, so he has been a public figure teaching about the Bible and about God for about three years now. And it's coming to the last week of his life. At the end of this week, he's going to be crucified on the cross and buried in the tomb and three days later rise from the dead. Okay, so this is within six days of what's taking place as he tells this story. Yesterday in our story, Jesus came into Jerusalem in what is known as the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. So he came into Jerusalem for this last week of his life. Nobody else knew this, even though he was telling people, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise again from the dead. He was telling his disciples that. They didn't quite understand. But as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, they have like this flash mob parade for him. And people are like, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And they start like throwing stuff on the, on the ground in front of him, making like a red carpet for him. They all are like waving palm branches. They're all screaming out, Hosanna. They're calling him the king of the Jews. They're calling him the savior of the world. It's like this crazy, like instant parade for Jesus out of nowhere. And the religious leaders hear this commotion and are like, what the heck is going on? There's a parade for Jesus. And they go down there and they hear people screaming, you're the king of the Jews. You're the savior of the world. You're sent from God. You're going to save our country. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Back up the train here, right? So they come to Jesus the next day as he's publicly teaching in the temple. And they say, Jesus, did you really let them throw you a parade yesterday? Did you really let everybody say you were the savior of the world, that you were the king of the Jews, that you were the hope for all people? Did you really, is that, who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are to have a parade saying you are the savior of the world? And Jesus, as these religious leaders are saying this to him, starts to tell this story. He says, what do you think? There's two sons, right? And then he gets to the end of the story, right? And I just picture these religious leaders in the front of the crowd, really angry faced, right? They're sitting there in their fancy robes because that's how they did it in those days. They had these big chain necklaces, like wrappers for God, right? No, not wrappers, but you know, they're like fancy, right? They were supposed to be religiously directed. And they had, you know, religion even in 2021, 
right? Uh, some religions, the bigger and the fancier your hat, the most important person you are. And so they had these huge, crazy hats and chain necklaces and robes and dangly things off their robes and medals, all this stuff. And Jesus looks at him and he says, prostitutes are getting into heaven before you. That's pretty heavy, right? Like, geez, Jesus, shots fired, bro. Like prostitutes are getting into heaven before big hat guy. Like just picture Jesus standing in front of the Pope and being like, hey, prostitutes are getting into heaven before you. Whoa, whoa, that is heavy. That is really heavy. So what is it that the religious leaders were missing that Jesus says the prostitutes were understanding and therefore was getting them into heaven. Well, look at verse 32. It says, John, now you're like, who's John? John the Baptist. Okay, so if you didn't know who John the Baptist was, John the Baptist was uh, sent by God ahead of Jesus a couple years prior, right? And so John the Baptist was going around Israel preaching, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the Messiah is coming. And that was John the Baptist's main message. Repent, 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 repent. Repent's not a word we use a ton, but repent means to turn around. So you're going this way, you turn around, go a different direction. You realize, hey, I'm on the wrong road. I got to turn around. That's repentance. So John the Baptist was saying, repent, repent, repent. And what happened was the prostitutes and the tax collectors we're hearing that and they were realizing, I'm on the wrong road. I'm on the wrong road. I should be going the other way. And they were doing it. And that is what actually Jesus is celebrating in this parable. This little story about the two sons. We are in a bottom line society. I get it. We're all about, you know, drive and ambition and getting things accomplished and, and America, right? We get stuff done. But that is not what this parable is about. It's not like, hey, one son got stuff done and the other didn't. No, it's actually one son was humble enough to repent. He said no at the beginning, but he went and changed his mind and went and did the work. That is what is important about this parable, is that he was humble and that humility led to repentance. I told you at the beginning of this sermon that this is the most important thing. This is the most important thing I look for. When we're talking about hiring someone or putting someone in leadership or taking someone on a mission trip or trusting someone, I look for humility and examples of repentance. Have I seen a place in their life where they were going a direction, the Holy Spirit convicted them, and they said, you know what? I need to stop doing that and go a different way because it's unbelievably rare. It's unbelievably rare. And what Jesus does is he points out this interesting dilemma. Is the prostitutes were going this direction. They heard John the Baptist say repent and they said, hey, we're going to go the different way. The religious leaders heard John the Baptist say repent and they're like, no, nah, we're good. We're good. And then Jesus says at the end of verse 32, he says, even when you saw the prostitutes turn around and you saw them change their lives and you saw the fruit that was coming from it, you didn't turn and change. You didn't start going the different direction. You wouldn't admit that you were wrong. And so Jesus says, that is the problem. You won't turn around. God can't get your attention. He can't, you can't hear him. You're going this direction. And he said, turn around, bro. And you're like, nah, I'm good. 
I'm religious. I got a big hat. I go to church every Sunday. I have a Bible. I got a bunch of Bibles. I know what they say. I don't need to turn around. If that's your attitude, Jesus is warning you this morning. Jesus is warning you this morning. And it's crazy because the line that Jesus draws is not between good guys and bad guys. It's not between religious people and irreligious people. It's not between moral people and amoral people. It's not between rule followers and rule breakers. It's the line is between the proud and the humble. The line is between the repentant and the unrepentant. The people who God has enough of their attention that when he speaks, they will actually turn around that they're in. And the people who never turn around are out. And we talked about this two weeks ago when we were talking about the parable of the prodigal son. You're all supposed to yell, there's two sons, if you were here. Yeah, well, you, you passed the test, Alice. Good job. Right? So the parable of the prodigal son was not that the good are in and the bad are out. It's the humble are in and the proud are out. And that's the exact message that Jesus is saying here. Humility that manifests itself in repentance qualifies you for the kingdom. Pride that never leads to repentance disqualifies you from the kingdom. If you're too proud to ever admit that you need to turn around, then you're out. This is what Jesus is saying to these people. And he tells another story to illustrate his point. Look at verse 33. He says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug it in a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. So this was a very common scenario in those days. He set up a vineyard, right? He's got a fence around it. There's a wine press. There's all the stuff that you need for a vineyard. It's not that there's not enough. It's not that they didn't give the guys enough to grow the fruit, okay? So there's all the stuff that you need to have a vineyard, and he rents it out to these guys. He says, hey, I'm leaving, but I own this place. I want you to take care of it, make sure the grapes grow, produce the wine, do the stuff that vineyards do. And then when the fruit time came, right, the season, you could tell I'm not a farmer, right? There's farmers in fruit time. What are you talking about, bro? Nobody says fruit time. I don't know. I live in the city. I'm sorry, right? But when the time of harvest came, right, the master sends servants back to the tenants to get some fruit. And look what happened. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Now, if you're listening to this story, you are not only shocked at the response of the tenants, but you are like, you're like, whoa, like brazen, shameless. Like, who do you think you are? It's not even your vineyard. You didn't build. Like, what are you doing? How do you think you're going to get away with this? Like, you are Dumb as a rock if you think you're going to be okay doing this. This is not okay. And every single person on planet Earth knows it. There's not some guy in the crowd going like, I don't know, I think they're misunderstood. Right? You just don't know they're, they had bad moms. No, like nobody's saying that. Everybody is like, you got to be kidding me. This is ridiculous. And so what does the master do? i tell you what I'd do. i just hunt them all down and kill them one at a time with Liam Neeson, right? Like, because that's what he does. That's not what the master does. 
Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. And finally, he sent his son saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? So he tells the story, Jesus does. And then he again asks the crowd, hey guys, what do you think? What do you think the master is going to do to those tenants of the vineyard when he comes back. And they said to him, verse 41, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So what was it that made the crowd so unanimously decide that these guys were not only wretches, but deserving of a miserable death. Was it that they were bad tenants? They they didn't know how to grow grapes very well. Was it that they made some foolish financial decisions? Yeah, they wasted some of the money. Oh, they weren't good planners. They weren't organized enough. Was it they were just lazy? Yeah, they didn't get a lot of work done. They just kind of played around a lot. There wasn't enough wine for anybody. that, That vineyard should have had a lot more grapes. No, it wasn't any of those things. It was the fact that not only did they not recognize that what they had was not theirs, it was the master's, but even when he sent multiple people back to warn them, they didn't listen. Now, I told you, I would have just killed them after the first, like, I send my servants to get fruit. They're like, we're not giving you fruit. What did you think you were given all this stuff for? Why did you think we gave you a vineyard? It's to have fruit. That's the whole point of having a vineyard is so that it produces fruit. But they didn't. They, they didn't kill him. They killed the first set of servants. So what's the master do? He sends more servants. And the second servant said, hey, guys, I don't know if you know what you're doing. But if you continue on this path, you can only expect judgment and death. Like this is not your vineyard. This is intended to bear fruit. The things that you were given and allowed to accomplish are intended to bear fruit for your master. So if you keep doing what you're doing, this is going to end badly for you. They didn't listen. They didn't listen. The master sends a third delegation. This one includes his son. Guy comes in. Hey, my dad is pretty upset, as you can imagine. You should probably turn around. You should probably stop doing what you're doing. You should probably do things differently. What do they do? They killed the son. The problem was their arrogance and pride. They acted not just with complete disregard for the vineyard owner, but their actions were cruel and hateful. And I don't think one person in the crowd would have said otherwise. They all understood what a ridiculous scenario this was for the tenants. And then Jesus, remember, talking to a group of very religious Jewish leaders, says this in verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, which is kind of insulting, right? Hey, did you ever read your Bible, Mr. Big Hat? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So there's a quote from Isaiah. They all would have known this. This is what the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in your eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Here's the word picture that Jesus just used. He's looking right at these religious leaders. And he's like, it's kind of like God gave you something to build. And then he gave you the stuff to build it with. And you took the stuff to build it with and you chucked it and you just started building your own thing. And what is going to happen is God still needs to get the work done. So he's going to find other builders and they're going to use that stone that you rejected because it's me, it's Jesus, and I'm the most important stone in the whole building. The cornerstone used to be the stone that every other stone in the building was measured off of. And in some instances, without the cornerstone, nothing else in the entire building would stand. Right? So this is the most important piece of the entire building. And Jesus is like, that's me. You rejected me. And so God is going to put you guys aside and he's going to use a different group of people to build what he desires to build. And I'm going to be the most important piece. And so like anything in your Bible, there's an immediate context, right? The historical context of what Jesus is saying right then and there. And then there's this broader application that we can learn from in our day and age. And so the immediate context was that the Jewish religion had no longer served the Lord and done what he called them to do. At some point, they got off the rails, right? We've been going through the Old Testament. We just finished going all the way through the book of Genesis. And at that point in time, the Jewish people, the Jewish religion, they were God's representation on the earth. But at some point, they stopped listening to God. And you can read all through your Old Testament, the prophets were sent by God to the people of Israel. And they were like, turn around. You're going the wrong way. Turn around. If you read the book of Isaiah, the very beginning of Isaiah, it gets so bad where Isaiah is like, this is from the Lord. God hates it when you get together to worship him. Can you imagine how far off the track you have to get, right? Where God's like, that thing you do on Sunday, it stinks in my nostrils. Like, I would rather you just didn't do it. I mean, that's pretty far off the beaten path. Like you're, and God sent these prophets, turn around, turn around, turn around. Then just like the, the vineyard owner in the parable, he sent his son and Jesus came. And that's what he's doing right now to these religious leaders. Turn around, turn around, turn around. What's going to happen is they're not going to listen. And so from this point onward, God is going to start doing a new thing through Jesus Right? And the Jewish people and the Jewish religious system, because they got so far off the rails, they're going to be set aside for a moment and God is going to be working through the church. And the church, the people who believe in Jesus all across the world, Russia and Africa and Australia and South America, believers in Jesus, those are going to be, be the people of God on the planet Earth who God is going to work through until the end times when God's going to do a whole different thing, but that's a different study that we don't have time for today. But long story short, the immediate context was Jesus saying, hey guys, you missed it because you weren't humble enough to turn around when God told you to turn around. And so that's our broader application. Yeah, we're not in this giant religious system today. I don't got a big hat up here, right? But the temptation, the danger still remains. The, the people who go to church, which is, you all showed up to church this morning, good for you. The warning is that it becomes super easy to just fall into this routine and stop listening to the Lord. 
to where if he told you to turn around, he can't even get your attention any longer because you're just convinced that you got it all figured out. You're convinced that you don't need to turn around. You're convinced that you are doing the thing that you need to do. And so God would never need to change your direction. And I'm telling you, that's prideful. And if you're going by this, that puts you on the outside looking in. Remember what Jesus is teaching is that the proud are out and the humble are in. And just to be really clear, the pride of humanity is not limited to people within the church or within a religious system. There are prideful people in every walk of life, okay? It's 2020, like the most prideful year in the history of humanity, right? On both sides of every issue that we dealt with, right? We went to racial injustice and there are people on both sides that are as prideful and arrogant and not needing to turn around as you could possibly imagine. Right? Then we had COVID and there are maskers and non-maskers who are as prideful and arrogant and not humble as you could possibly imagine. Then we had an election. There's red people and there's blue people who are as prideful and arrogant and not humble as you could ever imagine, right? Go down the list over and over and over and over again. There are prideful, arrogant people saying, not nah, I don't need to turn around. And that list includes prostitutes, drug dealers, church people, businessmen philanthropists, all over planet Earth, every walk of life has groups of people whose hearts are hard to what God is saying to them to turn around. And so it does not matter where you're from, where you are, where you're going. No walk of life is exempt from pridefulness. No walk of life is exempt from unrepentance. Every corner of the globe, there are people who refuse to give up their sin just because of what the Bible says or what the Holy Spirit is convicting their heart of. So the picture that he uses in verse 44, he says this, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So he's talking about this cornerstone. He says the stone that the builders rejected, this group of Builders in the religious system that the Jews had set up, they said, ah, we have no use for Jesus. And then God's actually going to build this incredible thing out of Jesus, using Jesus as the main piece. And then he changes the picture a little bit. He says, you know that cornerstone, that most important piece? You got two options. Either you fall on it in humility or it'll fall on you in judgment. Either you rest on the rock and you go, you know what? I do need to change. It's not me. It's God that has given every good thing that has ever come from my life. And and with humility, you rest upon God. and, And what happens in that moment is you'll be broken to pieces. I promise you. You come to church and you listen to what God has for you. And you will you will feel it. The Holy Spirit will literally. I can't even say it a different way other than break your life to pieces. And you're like, that sounds terrible. It is terrible, but it's kind of awesome at the same time. How many people know what I'm talking about, right? You get in that spot and you're like, nothing of what I've done has worked. It's all nonsense. It all has ended in crazy disaster. And yet God is still good and loving and gracious and faithful. And because of him, I have hope. That's what he's talking about. That experience right there of humbling yourself before the Lord and realizing there's nothing good within you. And yet, because of God's goodness, you still have hope in a future. 
He says, or you could do the other thing and be like, I don't have anything to be sorry for. And God says, all right, you want to play that game? Let's start checking boxes off the list. Have you ever lied? You ever done something you know you shouldn't do? Ever done anything to hurt anybody else? Right? And like three in, we're like, oh, crap, this is going to go bad. Yeah, it's only going to get worse. That's why the picture he uses is of a cornerstone crushing somebody. Like there is no hope of survival if you want to pridefully go to the judgment. This is not going to work. There's not a person on planet Earth who's like, I do the right thing every single time. Even the most prideful people on planet Earth are like, yeah, I screw up a lot. Nobody is like, I know what I should do and I follow it through to the T all the time. And if you are, you are delusional, right? Everybody knows they mess up. And that is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you want to go on your own merit, the judgment of God is going to crush you. Just like that master coming back and be like, hey, I gave you life. I gave you ability. I gave you stuff. Where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? Did you ever repent? When I told you to turn around, did you ever listen to me? All you can expect in that moment is judgment. So as we close here, here's the question you can ask yourself. When was the last time you turned around just because God told you to? When was the last time you turned around just because God told you to? You were going one way, you read your Bible, or maybe you prayed, or maybe you talked to someone, or maybe you just came to church and the Holy Spirit was like, poof, put its finger on that thing. Some of you know that experience. You're like, I got it. This has got to get, I got to do the thing God wants me to do. And you turned around. If God wanted to change something in your life this morning, could he? Does he even have that access? If God was like, I want you to change this, and you wouldn't listen, that should be a giant red flag. And look at where Jesus finishes, verse 45. It says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They're like, talking about, I think he's talking about us. Wait a second. You talk, like, yeah, He's telling you, like, how messed up the thing you're doing is that God's shouting at you from heaven to turn around. And you're like, hmm, I think he might be trying to tell us something. Yes, he's trying to tell you something. The whole point of you being alive is fruit. Right? We talked about our purpose as a church. We help people know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. The whole point of it all is make a difference. We might have that slide. Can you throw that slide up there, Brandon? It might be up there if he finds it, right? We talked about that first parable, the parable of the sower. Like, bearing fruit is the point. Do you have the one with the little plants on it? Yeah, look at that guy. (laughs) High five to the sound guy. The whole point of all of this is to bear fruit. The whole point, all of you have been given is to bear fruit. If you're still alive, it's because God thinks that you could bear fruit. If not, if you weren't expected to bear fruit, the moment you understood the gospel and believed in Jesus, and were like, hey, I think God's good, you'd be like, fall over dead and gone to heaven. There's no reason for you to be alive again, unless it's to bear fruit. And so your knowledge of God, your freedom from sin, your discovery of purpose is intended to bear fruit. And some of you are in a place right now where you haven't found freedom from your sin. And if you came to church, I'm good on that one. 
please listen to the Lord. Please be humble enough to receive this from him. If you're like, I know my purpose, please be humble enough to receive if he wants to change your direction. Because this is where that humility that leads to repentance usually takes place in those two steps, finding freedom and discovering purpose. And I pray, I pray that you don't leave this place and go like, man, Jared just made me feel terrible about my entire life. That's not my intention. My intention is that a month from now, a year from now, 20 years from now, that you heard this and didn't hear it as just a guilt trip from some guy who was reading a Bible passage, but you heard this as motivation to bear fruit. That's what I hope happens. I hope that 20 years from now, we look back and be like, hey, I heard something that maybe I didn't really like and it was kind of uncomfortable, but I understood it because I needed to bear some fruit. Because here's the truth. Your, the, the best life that God has for you, God's best plan for your life, the absolute dream that you have in your heart, in your mind of living fulfilled and, and at peace and feeling like you accomplished something in life and just loving being alive, that, that kind of life, it's going to involve humility and it's going to involve repentance. I promise you. You cannot get to God's best for your life without humility and repentance. There's, there's no path, right? If you're like, I'm on the no humility, no repentance path, because that sounds uncomfortable. Then you are saying, I want something other than God's best for my life. I, I don't want what you have for me. I don't want your best. For, I don't want that life abundantly crap. No, I want to not repent. Okay, then you're settling for something else other than God's best for your life. And the reason Jesus teaches this is not because he wants to make everybody feel bad, but because he wants what's best for your life. Amen? Let's pray.